chapel. He, all, he warms you up there, right? It was a good morning thing. <clears throat> My name is Beth Guckenberger, and uh, it is so good to be here. It does feel a bit like coming home in many, many ways for us to be here at Grace Chapel. Um, the Guckenberger-Greer storyline is 20 years old. I first met Jeff and Debbie when I was a senior in high school, and he came rubbing into town with his wife from the East Coast talking about all these crazy ideas he wanted to do in youth ministry. And I remember they got a bunch of us students to kind of take his temperature, kind of like to see if we were going to give him the thumbs up and thumbs down. And he's ribbed me for the last two decades that I was one of the ones that voted against him because I said, no way is all those things going to happen. The guy is full of hot air. And um, (laughs) 20 years later, I am absolutely the one that fell on the wrong side of that equation. That as a result of some of Jeff's encouragement in our own life, we've spent the last 15 years living internationally following one of those big ideas that I didn't think was possible when I first met him. And when uh, my husband Todd and I were talking on the way over here, one of our favorite qualities about the Greer family is that they're kingdom-minded. They aren't necessarily concerned about whether or not the label or the credit or the idea comes back all the way to them, that they are willing to share their gifts and talents and resources in church body and time and labor and attention and love and prayer, and I could go on and on, with people all around the world for the purpose of growing up the kingdom of God. So anyway, for all those reasons, he's dedicated some of my babies. He spent time with my family and I as we um, nursed my father during his bout with cancer and then his eventual death he has talked to me i was um, telling someone the other day when we first arrived in mexico it was the year of el nino 1997 it was like 190 degrees it felt like most days todd and i rented this little concrete house in the middle of our downtown area full of cockroaches and zero climate control so jeff came eight days after we arrived there with a team of 30 people i mean we had lots of experience eight days into the trip right and At the end of our eight days, I was literally holding on to his arm like, don't fly away and leave us in this foreign country. I'm so, among other things, hot. And uh, probably wanted to say things like scared, but at the time, the only thing that came out was hot. So he reached into his wallet and handed us about $200 and said, go buy a window unit of some sort, some kind of air-conditioned window unit. So we went to the local hardware store and didn't speak Spanish, so I couldn't read any of the signage. But this, there was a big box. It looked like it had a big machine, and the, the name brand was Arctic Circle. So we thought that sounded like exactly what we were looking for. We buy this box, this Arctic Circle. We bring it home. You could tell you put water in one section of it. We closed up our bedroom, plugged this baby in, went off to the orphanages, which is where we've served the last uh, 15 years. Came back eight hours later, the whole way home from the orphanage, we're like, I wonder how cold our room is going to be. I wonder how cold our room is going to be. We get home, and we open up the door, and the walls were black, completely black, because we had bought a humidifier, <laughs> which nobody needs a humidifier in July, the year of El Nino in Mexico. We actually, like, it was, it was ridiculous. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, we have a long and rich history with Grace Chapel and certainly with the Greer family. So for all of those reasons... It is fun to be here this morning here in his living room and be here with all of you all and talk a little bit about the things that we're going to share about this morning. Uh, We're going to start out. I actually uh, got to spend some time this last year in Israel, and I learned this uh, one little 
tidbit from a Jewish teacher there. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Joshua 1, verse 8. It'll be up here on the screen behind us. This is a verse that you, probably a bunch of the kids will be memorizing down there in the Sunday school rooms. This is one of those verses that if you went to Sunday school as a child, you maybe have this committed to memory. It says, do not let this book of the law, referencing the scriptures here, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you can be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Well, if you have your own Bible, I would circle the word meditate because it didn't get translated exactly in the way that it should have from its original language into English. And I could spend the next 30 minutes telling you stories of ways I understand how things can get lost in translation. But really, the original word in uh, in the language is Hagah. That would be in Hebrew, H-A-G-A-H. So you could write that in your Bible right above the word meditate, Hagah. And a Hagah, if you think back to your English high school classes, it's an onomatopoeia. An onomatopoeia, remember, are those words that sound like what they are. So the word pop is an onomatopoeia, right? The word hiss is an onomatopoeia. The word boom is an onomatopoeia. Well, Hagah is a Hebrew onomatopoeia. And it literally means as a lion would consume its prey. So nobody who speaks Hebrew would say Hagah the way I just said it. They would, because that doesn't sound like a lion consuming its prey. That sounds like your kitty cat, right, consuming its little kibble and bits. I I can't do it because it actually is like kind of embarrassing. But you would say Hagah really loud, like Hagah. So if we were going to read this verse again um, and read it with the understanding of the original language, it would say, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but consume it like a lion would its prey so that you can be careful to do everything that's written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Meditate kind of infers to me that maybe every morning I should think about for a few minutes a couple of the verses that are inside. There's no way that that will be sufficient to come against all the things that will be opposing the work of the gospel that God has asked you to do. It is only, he knows, when we consume this word of God like a lion would its prey, will we be equipped to come against the things that will be in opposition to the gospel storyline he has invited us into. So this morning we're going to go through three verses, three different passages actually in scripture, in Jeremiah and in Mark and in Exodus if we get some time at the end. And we're not just going to meditate on these verses because it's what you do on Sunday morning and it's nice to sit and listen to someone talk about something maybe we haven't thought about in a while. But instead, we're going to attempt to consume this like a lion would its prey. So exactly like she prayed this morning at the end of worship, so that we would be filled up with the word of his truth, that we would be equipped then to go out tomorrow to do, and this afternoon still yet, to do the things that he has invited you into. I've been calling God my story weaver for a very long time. I think he's writing a story for our lives. And I think inside of our story are adventures and risks and challenges and opportunities and conflict. All these invitations he has for us to rub our life up against his spirit and watch what happens. And oftentimes when we come against those things and we aren't filled up with the word of God, the tendency we might have is to retreat. So we'll, we'll be talking about that a little bit um, more this morning. This last year, I wrote a book called Relentless Hope, and it came in the aftermath. Really, I had written a book in 2008 called Reckless Faith, and it is full of stories of things that I've seen in the foreign mission field, ways in which I saw God go to bat for this population that he has captivated my heart with, and that's for the orphan. I watched him multiply meals and break through 
gosh, look, it says in uh, Isaiah, uh, bars of steel and gates of bronze. I saw him move on behalf of the orphan child in ways that I was privileged to be blown away by and an eyewitness to. And I recorded that in the, in the stories that I wrote in Reckless Faith. And in the aftermath of that, I would find that when I would go places to talk about it, people would say to me, that's so great you've seen God move that way. But he doesn't do that for me. He doesn't, that's not how it looks like in my life. Maybe he does that for missionaries, or maybe he does that for orphans, or maybe he does that in foreign countries, but he doesn't do that for me here. And I was having a good conversation with a friend of mine who'd been in ministry about as long as I had, and he and his wife had four children, and he told me that that year his wife confessed to him that as she was pregnant with baby number five, that that child was not his. It was indeed that of his friend's. He was telling me a little bit about how hard that had been to hear and kind of the events that had unfolded after that announcement on her behalf. And I said to him, man, golly, you've got quite a story. He said, yeah, but nobody wants to hear my story. They don't put you up on a microphone or in front of a church unless, like, your cancer counts go down or your prodigal son comes back home or your baby comes back to life or your spouse repents and... Nobody really wants to hear the story while it still looks like the way mine does right now. And I told him I had had just gotten back from a funeral of a dear family friend of ours who had taken his own life. And I was about five rows back from the family who was grieving. And I was watching the pastor kind of come up to the stage to begin the memorial service. And I was thinking to myself, I would not want to be you. Because how in the world do you put an event like this in any kind of perspective that's even remotely comforting to the whole rest of us. And he opens up his Bible to Jeremiah chapter 15, and he read verses 17 to 19, and it says this, If you extract the precious from the worthless, then you can be my spokesman. And it goes on to say a bunch of other great promises. And when he said that, if you can extract the precious from the worthless, my heart went, yes, that's exactly what this feels like. This is worthless. Funerals in general feel worthless. When a life is lost, it feels worthless. But when a life is taken by their own hand, that even feels even more worthless. So I like the fact that we weren't pretending like it was anything other than what it really was. But then when the pastor said, but Jesus tells us, well, it's of course the Lord and through the prophet Jeremiah. If we can extract the precious from the worthless, then we can keep our head above the water. Then we get to have the the benefit of being connected into a vine that's greater than ours, then we have the opportunity to show a light that's coming from a source other than my own. It it gives us an opportunity. And so I was telling that story to my friend whose, whose wife had been unfaithful. I said, could you tell me some of the precious you could extract from the worthless events of the last year? And the whole conversation changed. And he began to tell me about some of the unbelievable ways in which he and his Lord had communed. He began to tell me about some of the ways in which his children had come to understand who Jesus really was and the faithfulness that he had to their family in ways that he he wasn't sure they would have experienced otherwise. He began to talk about ways in which he was personally receiving an inner healing for things that he did that contributed to what had happened. He went on and he, he just couldn't stop talking about precious, precious, precious. And I thought to myself... That's the difference of us as believers. That's what we get. We don't get a pass out of the worthless circumstances of life. 
living with orphans as long as I've had, my days are filled with worthless circumstances. Children that have been enslaved and abused and abandoned and hurt and discouraged and, I mean, you name it. They don't get a pass necessarily out of those experiences. We don't get a pass from attending funerals of people who've taken their own life. We don't get a pass from the pain that we either cause by our own hand or get caused by the hand of someone else. We don't get a pass out of it, but what we get to do is extract the precious from the worthless and watch God turn all things together for the good of those of us who love him. I uh, was talking to a youth pastor. He came to our house um, he, he's from a church. If I said its name, every one of you would recognize at least its name or the name of the books that were written by the pastor, one of the largest churches in this country. And we were sitting around our kitchen table, and we were just sharing our stories. And I asked him a little bit about his story, and he said, Well, I was in youth ministry about 20 years. And then I, I made some moral choices that went against the things that God had taught me and led me to do. And as a result of those poor choices, I lost my ministry, I lost my wife, I lost custody of my children, and I spent several years in a tailspin selling insurance. And I was missing the ministry life I had experienced so much. I just made up a little resume and a cover letter that told my story and the ways in which God had grown me up from the mistakes I had made in life, and I submitted it to one of those Christian job boards. And I was hoping like some country church out and who knows where would let me be like a part-time volunteer. I wasn't looking really for a paid position. He said, so imagine my surprise when this church called me and asked me to come in as an interviewer to interview for a position as the director of student ministries overseeing all of their satellite campuses. He said, I came in and I went through a series of interviews and I got all the way to the last step, which was sitting face to face with the senior pastor, where he then offered me this job that I have today. And he said, I said to him right before I could respond to his offer, I said, I know you've read my cover letter. I know you've had literally thousands of other applications here and resumes. I know that there are, you've got, I I, I just got to ask you, Why would you want to hire me? And the pastor said to him, well, I'll tell you what. We found here in the church that most people have a broken season. And I endeavor to hire people on the other side of their brokenness because I find it makes them better ministers of the gospel of grace. And I said to him, that's why your church has 20,000 people. has nothing to do with how good that man can put together a sermon. But that's the kind of church I want to be on on a Sunday morning. Somebody who understands underneath the leadership of somebody who understands that we never get counted out of the game of Jesus. He never leaves anybody out to dry. There's never anybody who gets so totally taken out of the game they don't get that he doesn't have a story left for them still in the story weaver. That's that's the congregation at Grace Chapel. That's the, your very name that is here. So this morning we're going to talk uh, about the A fantastic story from the book of Mark. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the end of Mark. We're going to do like the last last 10 verses of Mark and the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5. At the end of Mark 4, Jesus was standing with his disciples in a town called Capernaum. Capernaum is um, kind of where was their home base. That's where he and the disciples lived during their three years, all the opportunities they took of ministry were out of that home base of Capernaum. And Capernaum was kind of like the Oxford of that community. 
Jesus was at the edge of that Sea of Galilee, standing in the town of Capernaum at the end of Mark 4, and he says to his disciples, hey, we're going to go across over, over to there. And he points to a little town that's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. When I was there, I stood on that same exact bank of that sea. And you think Sea of Galilee, you think kind of oceanish, you know, like it must be really big. But it's not really all that big. You can kind of see the shoreline all the way around it. And all of the shoreline kind of slopes up naturally from the water into the hillside, except for this one little town that's directly across from the Capernaum. And it is this enormous cliff. I don't know, 50, 60, 70, 80, I'm not really good with numbers, enormo cliff that then kind of dies abruptly down into the water. So Jesus was in Capernaum. He says to his disciples, we're going to go over there. The town that was on top of that cliff is a town called the Decapolis. We're going to go over there to Decapolis. And something that maybe you have already learned that I didn't know until I got there was that Jews from the first century and even still to a certain extent today, they consider large bodies of water metaphorical for the abyss. It's, of course, where Jonah went when he did the wrong thing, right, into the big waters. We know it happened in the days of Noah. When the Israelites fled from Pharaoh, you know, the let my people go with Moses, they fled through the sea that parted, and then the the Egyptians came following after them, and the water came and swallowed them up. All of that swallowed up the abyss, led them to that belief that large bodies of water are metaphorical for the abyss. So the first thing the disciples might have thought when Jesus said, we're going to go over across to the Decapolis was whatever disciples think, you know, like, gosh darn it, Jesus. We got across the abyss. The second thing they might have thought is something that they all knew then that we just now know because archaeologists have now excavated that the Decapolis, the, the folks over there were worshiping the gods of fertility and wine. So you can imagine what their Sunday morning services were like, right? So the disciples might have been thinking, gosh darn it, golly jeepers, we got across the abyss and the people that are worshiping the gods of fertility and wine, what are they going to want to do with us? What do we have to offer them? But Jesus would not be deterred. He got them all into the boat. They began across that abyss. And the abyss did to them exactly what it will do to you every single time you follow the gospel storyline. It will oppose you. It will kick itself up in your face. I always say the way you know you're smack dab in the middle of that gospel storyline is you're participating in any of these five things. You're involved in restoration or, or reconciliation or rescue or repair. And one more, Re- restoration, reconciliation, redemption, rescue, and repair. You're engaged in one of those things. You can feel utterly confident. You're right smack dab in the center of something God has asked you to do. That's what he, that is who he is. That's his very nature. They didn't even know which of those things they were a part of, but they knew God had called them to cross the abyss. On their way across the abyss, it kicks himself up in its face in in the form of a storm. And Jesus taught those disciples exactly what to do when the abyss comes against you and all the rest of us that get to read the account. And he set himself up perfectly for what he was about to go do over in the Decapolis. He silences the abyss with the word out of his mouth. The word that we have the privilege today to consume like a lion would its prey. This is what we use when the abyss comes against us. And I don't, I don't know about you all, but when I feel opposition on my way to do something that God asks me to do, here's my temptation. The first thing I often want to do is just tell the wind and the waves quietly if they would just please go. You know, like, that's ridiculous. I say, you know, please stop. Go away. 
being here at Grace Chapel always reminds me of the adoption of Josh Greer. Fifteen years, one of the hardest things I've ever been asked to do was the facilitation logistically of that adoption. It was one of the most opposed works I've ever been involved in. Halfway across that sea on the way to finish what God has asked us to do, we felt the, the wind kick up in our face so utterly hard. And I did spend some time turning around in the circle saying to the clouds, Stop raining. Go away. The second thing I always want to do when I get in the middle of the abyss that God's called me to cross and it comes up against me, sometimes I just think I'm going to go home until the weather gets better. Because it cannot be. It's not supposed to be this hard, right? I'm going to wait until God makes a way. But he's taught us what to do when it comes against us. We open our mouth and we utter the words that he's given us. And then it has no choice but to be obedient. So Jesus gets on the other side of the Decapolis, other side of the abyss. He pulls up into the Decapolis. It says in Mark chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus gets out of the boat. It never tells us the disciples get out of the boat, so I think we can safely assume they stuck there in the water. Jesus gets out of the boat, and he's met on a hillside by someone named Legion. He's a demon-possessed man who had been so full of darkness, so completely possessed by demons, it says that he had already been chained up to a graveyard on the other side of the hill. He had, like, blood in his heart and breath in his lungs. He, at one point, had to have had family and friends in the community. But he had been so counted out of the game, they went ahead and chained him up to a graveyard until he just died. But the demons inside of him were so strong, he broke out of those chains, and he went and he met Jesus on that hillside. And Jesus took one look at him and recognized what it was that was going on inside of him. And he looked around at his environment and it says on the hillside there, there were 2,000 pigs. We now know that they were sacrificing those pigs on the altars of the gods of fertility and wine. They've excavated thousands of pig bones on those altars. That's why there were 2,000 of them hanging out there on the side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus cast those demons into those pigs. Those pigs went flying off that great big cliff we saw. <laughs> and I love the picture of the disciples, you know, too overwhelmed by their abyss crossing not bought into the, what, the assignment that they had in the Decapolis, hanging out in the boat, just waiting for Jesus to finish up what he's doing. And all of a sudden, 2,000 demons says pigs go flying over their heads. <laughs> like, next time, just get out of the boat, right? <laughs> and then that man looks at Jesus and says to him exactly what we would say if that had been us. He looked at Jesus and said, can, can I go with you, whoever you are? Can I go with you? And it says in verse 18, we're going to read 18, 19, and 20 here together on the screen. It says in verse uh, 18, as Jesus was getting back into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away, and he began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And the people were all amazed. Then Jesus got back on his boat, he crossed back over that abyss, and he went back home to Capernaum. He did all of that abyss crossing for one person that every other person had considered lost. He was so counted out of the game, he was already considered dead, and Jesus crossed the abyss for him. And the first time I really, my heart captured that story, it reminded me of the story, you know, of the shepherd, the parable of the shepherd who had a hundred sheep, and then one of his sheep got away. And I remember thinking the first time I read that story, man, if I was like a herds girl and I had 99 out of my 100 sheep in the exact same place, 
I'd be thinking I was a pretty good herds girl. But we follow a shepherd that doesn't want even one of us left behind. So he leaves the 99, he goes out after the one, and it says he finds that one sheep, throws it over his shoulders, and celebrates by bringing it home. Having worked with orphans, I see their little faces up there, Pamela, and I I know all those little faces. Worked with orphans for as long as I have. I'm telling you, every single orphan I have ever met has felt like the one sheep away from a party of 99, and they're curious, is there anybody out here today looking for me? And it's fun for me to be in partnership with a church like yours who is on that path looking to reconcile and redeem and rescue and repair the orphan children that are left on this earth, 148 million of them. So anyway, if that's all we knew about the Decapolis story, that he had crossed the abyss for just one, that he silenced the abyss with the word out of his mouth, there'd be enough meat in that thing for me to chew on for the rest of my life. But there's more to that story. If you read it, follow, keep going in the Gospels, the next time you read about the Decapolis, Jesus is passing through it on his way to, to, to Jerusalem for Passover the week before he died. And it says as he crosses through the Decapolis, he's met there by a crowd of believers. That's already some first fruit of that young, that young missionary's life and ministry, the man that everybody else had counted out for good. Which, that's kind of fun to hear that. If you Google, go home and Google the Decapolis, in the, in the first hundred years, they've uncovered some plaques that were written to Christian physicians who were martyred for giving their services to the poor, right there in the Decapolis. So somehow, somebody so totally captured the message that was first uttered to them from a man who was at one point named Legion because of the demons that he had in them, that they were willing to give their services and their life for that gospel. And because I think God is a story weaver, I'm telling you, I think as he was crossing the abyss, he was listening to the cry of the demon-possessed man, but he was also thinking about the person who was going to receive services from the physician who was going to hear the gospel at some point from the man who was crying. He's a story weaver. He's, he's putting things together. 400 years after Jesus lived, in the year 400 A.D., a man named the Bishop of Decapolis, he penned something called the Nicene Creed. Anybody know that here in the room today? I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our begotten Lord, and it goes on and on. That Nicene Creed this morning is being said in seven continents. That is fruit from a man that everybody else thought was out of the game, but that Jesus crossed an abyss for. And I know that this church is an abyss-crossing church. I, I heard you just now in the life groups. You're crossing abysses in Westchester. You're crossing abysses in White Blossom. You're crossing the abysses over at Mason High School. You're crossing the abysses in Joss, Nigeria. You're crossing the abysses in Monterey and Cancun, Mexico. You're crossing, the, you're crossing abysses in your classroom. You're crossing abysses in your soccer fields. You're crossing abysses in your neighborhood. Some of you are crossing abysses in your immediate families, in your extended families. This is a church. I know that because I know who is up here talking to you. You are an abyss-crossing church. And this morning, I just want to say to you that when you feel the opposition come against you, it is a green light that you are smack dab in the middle of what God has asked you to do. And he has fully equipped you to tell the, the abyss to go right back where it came from. Because you are, you are a part of a story that the story weaver is writing that will have impact immediately when you get to the shore. You will, it will have impact 100 years from now. It will have impact 400 years from now. It will have impact 2,000 years from now if the Lord would tarry. 
We cannot say no to the things that God has asked us to do. We cannot walk away from the gospel storyline he has engaged us in. We would be missing out on so much if that happens. Okay, I'm going to finish with a quick story. I've been trying with all my heart to put this into practice. This idea that we take the gospel, we consume it like a lion would its prey, and that we wield this sword when we come against the enemy for us. One of my favorite examples of someone who, who modeled this for me was this last year. Todd and I have nine children. Three of them are biological, three of them are foster children, three of them are adopted. Two of our foster daughters we have known now every year that we've lived there, almost 15 years now. But we, they have lived with us in our home five or six of these last years. They have an extended family that's just recently come into the story They had never really spent any time with them, and they are part of a uh, family business that's up to nobody's good. And now that the girls are now 15 and 17, they want those girls to come home and participate in the family business. And they'd been calling and making some threats to our family about how they were going to try to exercise some legal rights in order to remove them and bring them back into their fold. And I knew that if I got in front of a judge or some kind of committee of educated professionals, I'd be able to explain to them the longevity of our relationship, the stability of our home, the projection of education that we provide them for their future. I'd be able to explain that we, they've never been in their lives before and the kinds of criminal activity we suspect them to be involved in, blah, blah, blah. I knew in the long run we would win that battle. But I wasn't sure in the short run, as she was calling and making threats, that some little entourage of social workers and police officers would show up at my door that the little girl with the blonde ponytail in the foreign country wouldn't lose. And they wouldn't temporarily remove the girls from our custody while they sorted the whole thing out in investigation. And I was beginning to get a little bit more and more and more and more and more concerned. So last spring on a Monday afternoon, they called with the final threat telling me they were showing up on Friday with the authorities. And if I wasn't going to release the girls into their full-time care, I better be expecting myself a fight. So I did what anybody would have done in my situation. I called the woman that had raised them for eight years that they weren't with us. They lived in an orphanage, and that orphanage is run by a woman in her 70s. Her name is Martha Rojas. She's walked with God so long. I literally like to rub up against her, which is kind of awkward, but she's gotten used to it. <laughs> like I just, she, um, she's just seen God in every single situation and story, and seen His faithfulness and proved her own. And I just like being with her. So I called her up as soon as I hung up. I'm like, Martha, they're coming on Friday at four o'clock. And here's what I want you to do: I want you to bring every visitor log those people never signed. I want you to bring every kindergarten record that you had to go pick up. Their dental records. I'll bring everything that I have. We'll put your stuff together with my stuff. We'll hold court right there on the spot. We'll try to convince anybody that shows up at my door that we are the the legal and rightful family that these girls need to live in. Psalm 168 says, "God blesses the lonely in families." I know that we're gonna, you know. And Martha, she's like calm as a cucumber. She's like, "I'll be there." I said, okay, good. Four days later, she shows up at my front door. She pulls into our front gate. I went and ran and met her at her car, and she had a great big bag in the back seat, which I thought was a really good sign. I said to her, like, did you bring everything you need? Did you bring, did you bring like, the pictures they painted and put on your refrigerator? Did you bring, like, like, I want everything. And she said, honey, I've got everything that we need. And I thought that sounded great. She and I go sit down in the living room, and then all of a sudden the front gate opens on our ministry compound, and in comes, the best way to describe it was like this beehive of activity. It was all these people, and they got out of their car, and they immediately started to shout all kinds of words you shouldn't be saying around our house, you know, all kinds of threats and profanity and all these negative words. and blah, 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 blah. 
And I'm trying to get control of the room. I'm saying, you know, like, would anybody like to come in for some iced tea? And I'm saying, like, you know, well, bienvenidos a nuestra casa. It's like nothing's working, you know. And so I'm kind of pulling them into my house where, because our houses are concrete, the acoustics just got a little bit worse, you know. But I'm thinking we got it contained a little bit better. And there's shouting and there's no order. There was absolutely no order. So I found the tallest chair I could find in the room. I stood on top of it and I yelled at the top of my lungs, I think Martha has something she'd like to say. And everybody just like stops. And Martha looks around and she's got some beady little eyes that can silence a classroom full of children in like no time flat. So I'm like, bring out the eyes, you know. She's looking right at me and I'm just like, you got the floor. And she reaches down into her bag and I can literally remember thinking to myself, bring it on. <laughs> Get out the visitor log right now. So she reaches down into her um, bag and she pulls out her Bible which these people do not share our faith, so I wasn't really sure what that was going. She's not listening, not worrying about anything, not looking at my eyebrows that were raised up to the sky. She just pulls out her Bible, and she opens up to Psalm chapter 1. She begins to read about the tree that was planted by streams of water, and in season it bears fruit. It's a lovely psalm. And they stayed quiet, because I don't really care what your faith is. Some lady in her 70s opens up her Bible and starts reading in your presence. You're afraid of, like, the lightning bolts, right? You just stay quiet and just look respectful. So she finished Psalm 1, and they, the room, the atmosphere in the room had changed. It had gotten quieter and more kind of respectful, and I thought this is a great tactic. I wonder if this would work with teenagers. And she finishes the end of Psalm 1, and she looks up at me. So I'm just, like, smiling at her, like, get the visitor log. And she just looks right back down. She goes into Psalm 2, which is not nearly as quotable as Psalm 1. Why do the nations conspire, plot in vain? I mean, it's a nice psalm, but whatever. Finishes Psalm 2, doesn't take a breath, goes into Psalm 3. Read Psalm 3, doesn't even take a breath, goes into Psalm 4, Psalm 5, Psalm 6, Psalm 7, Psalm 8. We're like at 25 minutes now, right? I like political things. I'm thinking, we're in a spiritual filibuster, right? Eventually, they got to go to the bathroom. They gotta go, they're going to get hungry. Like, they're going to go home. There's a lot of psalms in this book. Like, she finishes Psalm 9. Then she gets into Psalm 10, and I could tell something in her voice was changed, like the cadence had kind of changed. And I knew we were landing on something. She gets down to the end of Psalm 10, and she reads to us in verses 17 and 18. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them, and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. And she closes her Bible and she says to these folks, listen to me, these girls are daughters of the King Most High. They don't belong to us any more than they belong to you. You ask them where their king has whispered for them to be. And the oldest one, she's a little feisty. She was like, a key, which means here. And the little one is like, a key. And it wasn't like they just like stood up and shook my hand and, and like nice to meet you or anything. But they did start moving again. They got out of their seats, and the swarming kind of started, and the shouting, and the yelling, and the profanity. But they were moving to my front door, so I kind of skirted around them and opened it. And they're shouting, shouting, yelling, doing their thing, doing their thing. And they're moving towards their car. So I go open up our great big gate. They get in their cart saying, Te lo añaste, all these kinds of things that I shouldn't have just said in a church setting. Got into a car, and then they went flying out our gate. 
And I shut that gate like, oh, my, I mean, I just might as well have seen the Red Sea part. That was unbelievable. Martha's still sitting at the table in the house. So I go running over to her. I'm like, you did it, you did it, you did it, you did it. You did it. Like, I'm all like, ready to put my arms around her. And I was like, got like this close. And she pulls out her Bible, which I promise you is a whole lot bigger than this one. And she got this thing right up into my nose. And she said, don't you ever forget. This is the only sword you take into your battles. And I'm telling you, I'm never going to forget that. And I'm going to tell you every chance I get in front of you. This is the star of every show. This is who makes a way. This is what levels the valleys and makes a way where there is no way. This is what you use to extract precious from worthless. This is what you use when you face opposition crossing the abyss. This is the guide to life. And meditating on it for a few minutes every morning or every other morning or every Sunday morning is not going to cut it. This needs to be consumed like a lion would its prey. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much this morning for the way that you have story-weaved the Guggenberger and Greer story, the back-to-back and Grace Chapel story. The individuals in this room, thank you for the way that you've woven their lives into each other, and even more so as they get involved in their life groups this week. Thank you for the way that you have heard the cry of each and every one of us as we were chained up in our own ways. Thank you for crossing the abyss for us and all the days and moments and ways, Lord, when I look at you and say, just take me with you. I just want to go with you. Remind me again that you have said, stay here and tell all of your friends and family of the mercy that you experienced by me. Jesus, commission us to do that. And I pray these things in all of your name. Amen.